In our society, we striving from a message from God. God's messages transcend age, gender, socio-economic status, ethnicities, religious persuasions, political affiliations, and cultural restrictions that encourage and inspire people to become saved, delivered, and set free from the bond of sin, as well as, gain a closer relationship with God. This is God's Inputs for You with Evangelist, Dr. Sharon Westbrooks. Greetings. I'm Evangelist Dr. Sharon Westbrooks, the host of God's Input for You on the Resilient Christian Radio Network. Thank you for joining me for this broadcast. I appreciate each of you for tuning in. I was asked, what should a Christian focus be on during Thanksgiving? Well, Thanksgiving in the United States um, was uh, originally celebrated by pilgrim settlers in Massachusetts during their second winter in America in December 1621. During the first winter, 44 of the original 102 colonists died. At one point, their daily food ration was down to five kernels of corn apiece. But then an unexpected trading vessel arrived, swapping them beaver pills for grain, providing for their severe need. The next summer's crop brought hope. And Governor William Bradford decreed that December 13, 1621, be set aside as a day of feasting and prayer to show their gratitude of the colonies that they were still alive. From that time forward, Americans celebrate Thanksgiving as a day to give thanks to God for his gracious and sufficient provisions. Scripturally, we find things related to the issue of Thanksgiving nearly from cover to cover of the Bible. Individuals offered up sacrifices out of gratitude in the book of Genesis. The Israelites sang a song of Thanksgiving as God delivered them from Pharaoh's army at, after the crossing of the Red Sea in Exodus. Later, the Mosaic law set aside three times each year when the Israelites were to gather together. All three of those times, unleavened bread, also called the Feast of the Passover, Harvest or Pentecost, and the Feast of Ingathering or Tabernacles, involves remembering God's provision and grace. Harvest and Tabernacles took place specifically in relation to God's provisions in the harvest of various fruit trees and crops. The book of Psalms is packed full of songs of thanksgiving, both for God's grace to the Israelite people as a whole through his mighty deeds, as well as for his individual graces to each of us. In the New Testament, there are repeated admissions to give thanks to God. And the focus of this broadcast is on thanking God for his mercy, grace, and love. On the evening before his crucifixion, Jesus, with his disciples in the upper room, sharing with them some of the most intimate truths of his entire ministry, as he discussed the love of the Father and his love for his disciples, he declared, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. John 15 and 13. Though they didn't realize it at the time, the disciples were only hours from the practical realization of the aforementioned truth. One of the subtle 
evidences of the supernatural origin in the biblical text is that the inspired writers of the word of God often describe astonishing events in extremely brief narratives. This is perhaps best illustrated in the matter-of-fact way in which the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, which I believe is one of the most pivotal events in the history of the man, is described in the gospel accounts. All four of the New Testament gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, provide very brief moments leading up to Jesus' crucifixion and really don't describe the crucifixion in its totality. I understand the gospel writers didn't their best in describing the crucifixion, but they did not have the competence probably to discuss the infinite psychological, physiological, anatomical, and spiritual suffering Jesus and the two thieves endured before and during the crucifixion. However, I think it's important for us to pursue some of the psychological, physiological, anatomical and spiritual aspects of the of Jesus crucifixion to help us understand how much we ought to thank God for his mercy love and grace see crucifixion was invented by the Persians but it was perfected by the Romans it is arguably the most painful death ever invented by man and is where we get our term excruciating. It was a form of capital punishment for the most vicious, repugnant, loathsome, despicable criminals during Jesus' life. Well-trained Roman soldiers carried out the crucifixion. Each crucifixion team consisted of the excator, mortis, or centurion, and four soldiers called the quaternio. Crucifixions took place in full view outside the city walls of Jerusalem in a hilly region called Calvary or Golgotha. The most common device used for crucifixion was a wooden cross, which consisted of an upright pole, usually permanently fixed in the ground with a removable crossbar, weighing usually between 75 to 100 pounds. The Roman crosses stood about seven to seven and a half feet in height because from a practical point of view, it was easier to lift the cross piece and the victim into position. Additionally, it was also easier to remove the cross piece and victim in position. It was also easier to remove the victim after death, and it made it easier for wild animals to finish the victim off. The nails used in crucifixion were made of iron. A typical nail used in Jesus' time measured approximately 7 to 9 inches long with a square shaft that measured 9 millimeters at the head and tapered off to a 5 millimeter point at the tip. According to scriptures, the psychological aspect of Christ's crucifixion began in the Garden of Gethsemane on the evening before his crucifixion. While the disciples slept, the Gospel of Luke provides some very interesting insight into what Jesus was experiencing psychologically, physiologically, and anatomically. For Luke twenty-two, forty-one 41-44 conveys, And he, 
Jesus, was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was as it were great drop of blood falling down to the ground. Now, to me, it's interesting that Luke, the physician, noticed that Jesus' sweat was like drops of blood. I don't know if Luke knew the cause of Jesus' bloody sweat, but medical science today has a name for it. It's called hematidosis. Hematidosis is a condition in which the capillary blood vessels that feed the sweat glands rupture or break, causing sweat to mix with blood from the skin. The cause of the hematidosis is very rare, and it only happens when a person is under conditions of extreme physical and emotional pressure or tension. Make no mistake about it. Jesus wasn't sweating blood because he was afraid of the physical pain of the cross. Indeed, the book of Hebrews 12 and 2 informs us that Jesus looked forward to the cross. It conveys looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, after Jesus' arrest in the middle of the night, the soldiers took Jesus before the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and elders assembled there for an inquisition. Before this assembly is where Jesus experiences his first physical trauma. During this inquisition, the word of God lets us know that some began to spit on him and the blindfold and they blindfolded him and beat him and told him to be to prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palm of their hands. Now, now see beatings about the face received by a blown blindfolded individual causes even worse trauma because the victim cannot, as they say, roll with the punches. In the hours that followed, Jesus received two additional beatings at the hands of the Roman soldiers, disfiguring Jesus severely, fulfilling the prophecy in Isaiah 52, 13 through 14, which conveyed, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonished at, at the... His visage was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. In the early morning, battered and bruised, dehydrated and exhausted from a sleepless night, the soldiers took Jesus across the pertrium of the fortress Antoria, the seat of the government of the procreator of Judea, Pontius Pilate. Pilate attempted to pass Jesus' crucifixion responsibility to Herod Antipas, the tetrarch of Judea. But Herod put a gorgeous robe on Jesus and sent him back to Pilate. After that, the Roman procreator Pontius Pilate informed the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, I, having examined him before you, have found no fault in this man. He went on to say, I will chastise him and release him. 
However, when the opportunity arose to decide the destiny of Jesus, the crowd of the Jewish leaders chose a criminal, Barabbas. And the Bible conveys in Luke 23, 20-21, Pilate, therefore willing to release Jesus, spake again to them. But they cried, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! It was then, in response to the cries of the mob, that Pilate ordered Barabbas released and condemned Jesus to scourging and crucifixion. Jesus was stripped naked of his clothing and shackled by his wrist to a low column so that he would be in a bent over position. A Roman legionnaire used a flagrum to scourge him. The flagrum is an 8 to 24 inch long whip consisting of several heavy leather thongs with bits of metal, bone, or glass embedded in the leather and two small balls of lead attached near the ends of each. According to the Jewish custom, a prisoner was flogged usually 39 times, 40 minus 1, as a sign of Jewish mercy. Scourging was an extreme form of punishment. One or more soldiers assigned to deliver the blows from the plagroom would stand beside the prisoner to strike a blow in an arc-like fashion across their exposed back. The weight of the metal or bone objects at the end of the leather thongs would carry them to the front of the body of the prisoner as well as to their back, arms, shoulders, and legs down to and including their calves. The bits of metal would dig deep into their flesh, ripping small blood vessels, nerves, muscles, and skin. The soldier would then change positions periodically to deliver blows from the opposite side. At first, the thongs cut through the skin only. Then, as the blows continue, they cut deeper into the subconscious tissues, producing first an oozing of blood from the capillaries and veins of the skin, and finally spurting arterial bleeding from vessels in the underlying muscles. So the small balls of lead first produce large, deep bruises, which were broken open by subsequent blows. Finally, the skin of the back is hanging in long ribbons and the entire area is an unrecognizable mass of torn bleeding tissue. The injuries sustained during scourging were so extensive, some even died from its effects. Blows to the upper back and rib area caused rib fractures, severe bruising in the lungs, bleeding into the chest cavity and partial or complete pneumothorax, which is puncture wound to the lung, causing it to collapse. As much as 125 milliliters of blood could be lost by the victim. The Bible does not record if Jesus experienced periodic vomiting or tremors, seizures, or bouts of fainting, but all those were so common during scourging. The scourged prisoner would be diaphoric, meaning sweating profusely and exhausted, their flesh mangled and ripped. They would crave water because of the loss of fluid from bleeding and um, they would be dehydrated. The steady loss of fluid would initiate hyperbaric shock, while a slow, steady accumulation of fluid in their injured lungs would make breathing difficult. Fractured ribs would make their breathing painful, leaving them only with the ability to be able to 
take short, shallow breaths. The plumbed at the end of the leather strap would lacerate their liver and maybe their spleen. Their beatings continued until the centurion in charge determined they were near death and stopped the beating. The half-fainting victim was untied and allowed to slump to the stone pavement wet with their own blood. I cannot even imagine the pain Jesus endured. Yet the Roman soldiers saw it as a great joke for the provincial Jew claiming to be king. They mocked Jesus and threw a robe across Jesus' shoulder and placed a stick in his hand for a scepter. Then they took a flexible branch covered with long thorns used commonly to bundle for firewood and plait them together into the shape of a crown and pressed the crown into Jesus' scalp. Again, there is copious bleeding because the scalp is one of the most vascular areas of the, of the body. As the soldier struck Jesus on his head with reeds, he would have felt excruciating pain across his face and deep into his ears, much like sensations from a hot poker or, or electric shock. Jesus, no doubt, felt those pains all the way to Calvary and while he was on the cross. As he walked and fell, as he pushed and shoved, as he moved any part of his face and as the slightest breeze touched his face, it would trigger new ways of intense pain. After mocking him and striking him across the face, the soldiers take the stick from his hand and strike him across the head, driving the thorns deeper into his scalp. <laughs> Finally, they get tired of their sadistic sport and they tear the robe from his back. Already having endured to the clots of blood and serum in the wounds, its removal causes excruciating pain just as the careless removal of a surgical bandage and almost as though he were again being whipped. The wounds once more began to bleed. Jesus endured all of that agony. Isaiah prophesied of Jesus' agony of love. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheek to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. Isaiah 50 and 6. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Isaiah 53 and 5. The heavy pendulum of the cross was tied across Jesus' shoulders, and the procession of the condemned Christ, along with the two thieves and, and the Execution detail of Roman soldiers headed by a centurion began its slow journey along to Calvary. In spite of his efforts to walk erect, the weight of the heavy wooden beam together with the shock produced by copious blood loss is too much. We know that Jesus stumbled and falls at least three times on the way to Calvary. The rough wood of the beam gorges into the lacerated skin and muscles of his shoulders. He tries to rise, 
but human muscles have been pushed beyond their endurance. His condition was serious. <laughs> Each time he failed, it would be more difficult to get up. His executions needed to keep him alive until the crucifixion. So the centurion, anxious to get on with the crucifixion, selected a North African onlooker, Simon of Cyrene, to carry the cross. Jesus follows, still bleeding and sweating the fold, clammy sweat of shock until the 650-yard journey from the fortress Antonio to Golgotha is complete. By the time Jesus and the two thieves arrive at Calvary, there they are in exquisite pain, struggling to breathe and suffering from blood and fluid loss. As a gesture of Roman kindness, <laughs> the prisoners were offered a mixture of vinegar, gall, and wine as a mild anesthetic, but Jesus refused to drink it. One of the executioners threw Jesus to the ground quickly with his shoulders against the wood. Another executioner pressed down on his chest. Another held him down by his legs while a third soldier stretched his arms one at a time across the crossbar and drives the nail through Jesus into the wood, severing the nerves, causing bolts of radiating pain up Jesus' arm and paralysis of his hand. That executioner moves quickly to the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arm too tightly, but to allow some flexing and movement, offering no relief from the agonizing pain. There will be minimal bleeding and no broken bones, fulfilling scripture. He keepeth his bones, not one of them is broken, Psalms 34 and 20. Then two members of the executioner squad likely manned the ends of the cross piece while a third member grasped Jesus around the waist, getting him to his feet. They backed him up right onto a platform device and then two men lifted him by the legs and insert the cross piece into a mortise on top of the upright. They then began to position Jesus' feet, which is probably the most critical part of the mechanics of crucifixion. <laughs> First, they bend Jesus' knee about 45 degrees and place his downward, you know, until they are flushed to the cross with his left foot pressed backward against the right foot, both feet extended, toes down, and executioner drives one of those seven and nine inches nails through the arc of each, leaving the knees flexed moderately. The crossbar is lifted in place and at the top of the stipes and placed the tetelous reading over Jesus that says in Latin and Greek, this is the king of the Jews. Jesus is now crucified. Can you imagine the agony of love, mercy, and grace? Oh, God, we need to thank him. Hmm. No doubt Jesus could hear the screams of the two thieves as they too were being crucified. With their knees flexed at about 45 degrees, each of them must bear their weight with the muscles of their thigh. However, this is almost impossible task. As the strength of the legs give out, the weight of the body must now be borne by the arms and shoulders. 
The result is that within a few minutes of being on the cross, the shoulders will become dislocated. Minutes later, the elbows and wrists become dislocated. The result of these dislocations is that the arms are as much as six to nine inches longer than normal. With their arms dislocated, considerable body weight is transferred to the chest, causing the rib cage to be elevated in a state of perpetual inhalation. Consequently, in order to exhale, the victim must push down on his feet to allow the rib muscles to relax. The problem is that the victim cannot push very long because the legs are extremely fatigued. As time goes on, the victim is less and less able to bear weight on the legs, causing further dislocation of arms and further raising of the chest while making breathing more and more difficult. Can you imagine the agony of love, mercy, and grace? Oh God, we need to thank him. There is a pall over the people in the crowd. The long dirge up to Calvary. The awful crucifixion has taken place. And if you span the crowd, you will see those who love Jesus. But there is a shady cast of characters around the cross and in the courtyard kneeling around the temple. The Pharisees are there. The Sadducees are there. The disciples had all fled except for the beloved. Judas has already hung himself. Pilate is there. Herod is there. The soldiers are there. A large number of people who followed Jesus, including women who mourned and wailed for Jesus. They're there. Mary, Jesus' mother, is there. Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene are there standing near the cross. The public crowd is there. Jesus and the two thieves can hear the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocking Jesus. They hear the ruler sneer and say he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. And in the midst of the gore and the blood and of the screaming and the tears of the mocking and the jeering, no one gets it. No one gets it but a thief. The Pharisees represented ecclesiasm, but they don't get it. The Sadducees represented the law, but they don't get it. <laughs> Pilate represented opportunism, but he didn't get it. Herod represented secularism, but he didn't get it. The soldiers represented militarism, but they didn't get it. The crowd public represented acquiescence to a wicked government and alliance with the blasphemous religion, but they still did not get it. <laughs> but a thief, a thief got it. As he slowly sags down with more weight on the nails in his palms, excruciating pain shoots along his fingers and up his arms to explode in his brain. The nails in his palms are putting pressure on his median nerves. Can you imagine the agony of love, grace, and mercy? Oh, how we need to thank him for his provisions.
as Jesus pushes himself upward to avoid this stretching torment. He places his full weight on the nail through his feet. Again, there's the searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the maturous bouts of his feet. He hears his tormentors mockings, the crying, the mockers, the wailing of the women. At this point, Jesus' arms are tired. Great waves of cramps sweep over his muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward. Hanging by his arms, his proctal muscles are paralyzed and his intercostal muscles are unable to act. Air can be drawn into his lungs, but it's so hard to exhale. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to get even one short breath. Can you imagine the agony of love? Oh, how we need to thank him for his provisions of mercy and grace and love. Two hardened criminals, two lawbreakers, one on the left, the other of the right. One dying in sin and the other dying to sin. For in the midst of their agony and excruciating pain, the thief on the left of Jesus, no doubt hearing the religious leaders conveying, he saved others. This thief out of desperation to be free from the pain and wanting to be back down on the ground, railed on Jesus. If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. To rail is to say something abusively and harshly. That thief on the left yelled harshly at Jesus. If thou be Christ, not only is he being abusive and he is insulting Jesus because the if indicates he doesn't know who he's talking to. The if to me indicates that he doesn't believe, but in the event you are, if thou be Christ, then save yourself and us. See, this thief's statement is not only harsh, abusive, and insulting, it's selfish. The thief on the left was looking for cheap grace. He is like many today who want to use Christ for their own end. That's playing both sides against the middle. You could be, and if you are, you should do something for yourself and throw us in there as well. That's Christianity on the margins. That is one foot in and one foot out. That's coming to church when you need some money to pay a bill. That's coming one week and then missing three weeks. That is the CEM type of churchgoer. You know, the only time they attend churches on Christmas, Easter and Mother's Day. If you are Christ, then prove yourself. If only people on the outside and on the margins, use the word if when referring to Jesus, because there is no room for if when talking about Christ. There is no room for doubting Jesus's deity when referring to Christ. It is terrible. So many people listening to me right now are if people. The only time you call on Jesus is when you are in need because you want Jesus to do something for you. You do not recognize Jesus for who he truly is. You only call on Jesus in superficial, shallow ways when you are in crisis. Oh, the agony of love. God, we need to thank him 
for his provisions of love, mercy, and grace. Now, the thief on the right is not dying in sin like the thief on the left. Rather, the thief on the right is dying to sin. The thief on the left is dying in sin, didn't get it, but the thief on the right saw Jesus and he began dying to sin. The thief on the right recognized that the man in the middle is Jesus the Christ who is dying for sin. For that reason, the thief on the right rebukes the thief on the left. He said, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. You are dying on the cross, and yet you, even now, don't you fear God? This man has done nothing wrongly or imperfectly. We are here dying because we deserve it. See, this thief got it because he knew he deserved his wrath. So many listening to me right now, you put on your Sunday best dress and go to church looking real churchy Sunday after churching. But underneath all that is a sinner in need of. Oh, God, we need to thank you. All of us right now deserve the wrath of God. All of us deserve eternal punishment. All of us have sinned and come short to the glory of God. Everybody under the sound of my voice ought to be in line to go tell, to just go to, to, to hell because we deserve it. But, but praise God for sending his only begotten son down through 42 generations for Abraham to die for us, to reverse God's wrath for sinners who deserve it. Look at Jesus. Oh God, we need to thank him. I know it's not pleasant for me to talk about this during Thanksgiving, but the only reason we are here today is that God is so merciful towards us because the wrath of God should have been poured out on me, was poured out on Jesus. Jesus died to take away my sins, but I have a wrath that I deserve. The Pharisees didn't get it. The Sadducees didn't get it. But a thief got it. The thief on the right understood that he deserved the punishment he received. For there is a wrath deserved. He realized that he was guilty as charged. Consequently, he realized he deserved the, the punishment for his crimes. He didn't try to blame anyone else for his situation. But he displayed great wisdom. Let's look at the wisdom that he displayed. This man is a thief. There is no indication that he went to church, gave any money in an offering, prayed any prayers. But just looking at Jesus, the wisdom he displays over that of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, Herod, Pilate, the soldiers, the crowd. Nobody gets it but a thief. Just looking at Jesus, he said, this man has done no thing amiss. How did he know this? Where did he hear that? Who could have known in the circles he ran in to tell him that? There's no indication that he had an afore knowledge of Christ. The Bible doesn't convey he was there when Jesus turned water into wine, but he said he's, he's, he's done nothing amiss. 
There is no indication he was around when Jesus took two fish and five loaves of bread and fed over 5,000 people. The scripture doesn't record that he knew anything about a woman with an issue of blood who touched the hem of Jesus' garment and was made whole. None of the gospels record that the thief on the right was around when Jesus' disciples said, Master, don't you care that we are about to perish when they were on the Sea of Galilee and Jesus spoke to the wind and made it be still? He wasn't in the house when they tore off the roof to let a man down so Jesus could heal the man. He wasn't there when Jesus told the man by the pool to take up his bed and walk. There's no indication that he was around when the man stretched out his withered hand and Jesus made him whole. No, 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 there's no indication that he was there when the ten lepers shouted, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. And he 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 healed them of leprosy. There's no indication he was around when he told Lazarus to come forth after he was dead but he got it so how did he know that Jesus had done nothing amiss this leaf looked at Jesus and could tell there was nothing amiss what does that mean nothing amiss it means that Jesus did nothing improper for see, Jesus was charged with high treason against heaven, a blasphemy of, of not only laying claims to royal honors, but making himself equal with God. I take it, therefore, that in saying this man has done nothing amiss, he, his words must mean he has made no false claim. He said, I am the Christ, but in that he did nothing amiss. I am the king of Israel, but he did nothing amiss. He called himself the son of God, the light of the world, the rest for the weary, the physician of the sick, but he has done nothing amiss. Not that I for a moment suppose that this penitent criminal had knowledge enough to say all that this as I have said, but I feel confident that one look at Jesus, one real look at Jesus, and he knew. Only look at Jesus. I want you listening right now to me to take a look at Jesus and thank him for what he did for us on the cross. You can see him in the word of God. His countenance, his person deserves a look. You can find him in the word of God. Nobody, nowhere compares to Jesus. He's in a class all by himself. There is nobody like Jesus. You can search high and find there is none like him. As a saint, as a saint of God, I'm proud to declare that there's none like Jesus. We can't put him in the category with Socrates. We can't put him in the same class as Aristotle, nor the same company as Gandhi. There is nobody like Jesus. Therefore, we cannot allow the world to tell us that Jesus was just a good man. He was just a prophet. He has some good principles and some good ways. No, Jesus was not just a good man. Job was a good man. Nicodemus was a good man. John the Baptist was a good man, but they cannot compare to Jesus. Take a look at Jesus in the word of God. Oh, we need to thank him. If you're sick, he's a doctor. If you're in trouble, he's a lawyer. If you're lonely, he's company. If you're lost, he's a savior. If you're out, he can take you in. If you're down, he can lift you up. If you don't know which way to go, he can give you direction only. <laughs> take a look at Jesus. 
Make no mistake about it. I'm not going to let a thief get it and I don't get it. I'm not going to let a thief go to paradise and I don't go to paradise myself. I ought to have enough wisdom as a thief. My theology should be better than a thief's. If a criminal can get it, what about us who attend church Sunday after Sunday, Bible study week after week, hearing his name and don't get it? The only way I know you have it is when you hear his name, you have something to say. You can't look at Jesus and not say something. You cannot look at Jesus and not feel something. You cannot go away the same when you really look at Jesus. It doesn't make sense to get up on Sunday morning dressed in finery, surrounded by other people who profess to have Jesus and go to sleep in church. It doesn't make sense for you to open up the word of God and go to sleep on the word of God. See, you sleep some other time. For me, the more I call his name, the sweeter it sounds. Jesus in the morning, Jesus at noonday, Jesus late at night. There is power in the name of Jesus. Oh, Jesus. There is a name I love to hear. I love to sing his worth. It sounds like music in my ear. It's the sweetest name on earth. Oh, I thank you, Jesus, because of your provisions. I love Jesus. Just look at Jesus. We see the thief understood a wrath deserved, a wisdom displayed. But I want you to see further that he worshiped. He told the other thief on the cross in so many words, leave this man alone. Stop railing on him. Don't you even now fear God? This man has done nothing amiss. Check out the thief's worship. Jesus looking, just looking at Jesus, the thief called him Lord. The Pharisees didn't do that. The Sadducees didn't do that. Pilate and Herod didn't do that. The crowd, the mourners, the soldiers, nobody worshiped Jesus on the cross but a thief. Thank God a crook got it. And thank God some other crooks listening to me right now got it. I wish that there was someone listening to me right now who knows they should have went to jail, who knows they ought to be in hell right now. Somebody who knows that if you would have got caught, you would have been killed. But Jesus rescued you and you can cry out, Lord, when you enter your kingdom. I know I don't deserve it. I know I'm not worthy. I know I deserve punishment, but Lord. Remember me. Will the Lord remember me when I'm called to go? When I cross from this world into eternity, will he, his love there show? Will the Lord remember me when I am called to go? When I cross death's chilly sea, will he, his love there show? Oh, yes, he heard my feeble cries from bondage set me free. Bondage set me free. When I reach the pearly gates, he will remember me. Yes, he will. He will remember me. See, when I retrospectively look over my life and see how far God has brought me, I cannot hold back my extreme feelings of thankfulness. Sometimes I get so overwhelmed by God's mercy and grace and love that I cannot hold back the tears. Sometimes I cannot help but worship the Lord. I just thank him for his love and his mercy. 
I thank him for his provisions that he provided on the cross. <laughs> is there anyone listening to me that knows God is good to you? If the Lord opened doors for you, I dare you wherever you are to give God praise. If the Lord wrote your name in the Lamb's book of life, wherever you are, lift your voice and shout hallelujah. Because of God's mercy, grace, and love, I'm going to my father's house. I'm going to where the streets are paved with gold. I'm going to where the wicked cease from troubling. I'm going where the weary can be at rest. I'm going where there will be no more crying. I'm going where there will be no more dying. I'm reminded of an old song that conveys, if you miss me from being down here, come on up to bright glory, for I will be in paradise. Oh, my God. My time is almost out. Today you can make a way for you to be with him in paradise. Heaven must be something the Bible conveys. Eyes have not seen, ears have not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of men what God has in store for them that love him. And so my time is out, but I do not want to end this broadcast without sharing with you that John 3 and 16 conveys for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Additionally, Romans 10, 9 through 10 conveys that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. If you believe sincerely, Romans 10, 9 and 10, I ask you to pray this brief prayer with me so that you can be like the thief on the cross that got it and get it. Say, gracious God, our Father, I acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he died for my sins, and you, God, raised Jesus from the dead. I ask you to come into me, create into me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me so that I might serve you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. If you prayed the previous prayer with me, you got it. You're saved, meaning you are a child of God, a new creation. All of your previous sins are forgiven. For that reason, please read your Bible and pray every day. Join a church that teaches the word of God. Well, I appreciate you listening to this broadcast. You may follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or RCR Network. Please become a network partner. What I say unto one, I say unto all. Watch and pray. Live holy every day. Remember, much prayer, much power. Little prayer, little power. No prayer, no power. Please get it. Thank you for listening to God's Inputs for You with Evangelist, Dr. Sharon Westbrooks. Tune in next time with Dr. Westbrooks about God's Word for Your Life. Somebody ought to celebrate the awesome God. God's Inputs for You is copyrighted by Evangelist. Dr. Sharon Westbrook's Ministries, and the Resilient Christian Radio Network.